This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. And I'm Jonathan. Today, well, we pretty much jump into where we left off last episode, but I feel like I should preface this one, so that's how we'll begin. Warning here, this will be unlike any episode I've recorded yet. But the rest of the episode will focus on the connections we here in 2022 still have with our incredibly distant relatives. First, let me urge each of you to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using and to share the show with others you know and on your social media. Also, great stuff's happening on Patreon as well. In this Patreon series, we'll be following the goings-on of Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and Normandy, and of course others, as William struggles with the fierce rebelliousness of the proud Anglo-Saxons he'd unseated in England. So if you're curious about the whole picture, you'll only find it on Patreon. All right, here we go, folks. Today's episode, episode 77, is entitled, The Ties That Bind. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. It's easy to sit here in the American Midwest, something like 4,000 miles away from London, and being the lover of history that I am, wonder why my television and internet feeds are inundated with news about the passing of Queen Elizabeth II. It's easy, as an American, to say, yeah, and? I thought we fought a war so we didn't have to worry about that anymore. But if I've learned anything in my life, it's that what's easy isn't always what's right. And through the lens of history, the research for this podcast specifically, this lesson is equally, if not more so, true. I had episode 76 written and ready to record until I was in class a couple weeks ago, September 8th, 2022 to be exact, when a student of mine announced that the queen had just died. Immediately I asked him, and how do you know that? Well, he holds up his cell phone and smiles, but it took about a half second for him to realize that he shouldn't have had his cell phone out during class to begin with. His smile faded when he saw my smile. Thought so, I told him. Now, side note, for those wondering, wait, I thought he taught elementary school. Are American fourth graders cruising the internet in droves these days? Well, no, not, not in my experience at least, but now that I'm, now I'm teaching eighth graders English and language arts, and well, let's just say there's been quite a learning curve in that department. But I am absolutely loving it so far, though. Anyway, that is how I learned about the Queen's passing. And my first reaction was one of sadness. My second thought was, why am I sad? She's not my Queen. But my third thought was, yeah, but she was one hell of a woman. And this thought is pretty much what birthed this episode. I started reflecting on her life. Well, then I started looking into her life, and, and then I started comparing her reign to the rest of world history. Sometimes we need some event, like, like the death of someone prominent and important and influential, to put things into perspective. Well, and then I started thinking about the podcast and what I was ready to record, and I thought, well, 
I wonder if there's a connection here. Now, across the pond, our friends are probably wondering how stupid these Americans are that they didn't know such connections still existed. But again, to twist what I said earlier, well, I thought we fought a war to not have to worry about the kingdom anymore. And there's a superficial truth to that statement, but hopefully, as evidenced by me creating this podcast, I don't like to think superficially. I like to dig a bit to, to, you know, see what the hell's going on, you know? However, before we get on with it here, I'd like to offer my sincerest condolences to our friends in the United Kingdom for the loss of their queen. And though, yes, we did fight a war to blah, 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 the UK have been steadfast friends of the United States for the better part of two centuries now. And besides that, as as much as we would like to ignore or outright deny it, we and so many more nations out there in the West... Yeah, I'll go ahead and say it. Owe the United Kingdom an enormous debt of gratitude for many of the systems, philosophies, and general contributions we here in the West enjoy today. The West ain't perfect, but it's still the only place I'd rather be. And the UK, over the last several hundred years, blemishes and all, have funneled history into where we are today. Now, all that said, uh, I'm sure I might have, you know, ticked off some listeners who may scream at the podcast at this point and and say, you know, I don't know the politics of the royal family and all of that. And I've heard of some of these folks who are actually happy with Elizabeth passing. Kind of blows my mind that anybody would be happy with someone's passing. But that's not what this episode's about. I'm talking about the loss of a figurehead, the figurehead of a juggernaut of our shared history. I say let them whine and cry and turn off the podcast. Now today, I'd like to take a little bit of your time to connect our present to our past, if you'll allow me. We'll certainly get back to the Norman Conquest of England on the next episode, rest assured. But after a 73-year reign over the nation that we're discussing currently on the podcast, well, how in the world could I not take some time to talk about her? More than anything, though, I want to offer perspective. It seems to me the world has lost its sense of perspective. You know, without perspective, there is no clarity, no honesty, and most importantly, no gratitude. So, to pick up the story from episode 76, as Githa pleads her case to her kinsman, King Swain II Ethstrasen of Denmark, we will jump a thousand years from that moment. You heard me right. Let's jump almost a thousand years from that moment to the present, shall we? I think it still fits with the flow of the podcast, because the only way to truly understand the past is to put it into the context of the present, and, and vice versa. So, Queen Elizabeth II... Elizabeth was born on April 21st, 1926, in Mayfair, an incredibly affluent part of London's West End. Her father, the Duke of York, would soon become the United Kingdom's King George VI, as well as the last Emperor of India, linking British colonialism far more recently than our American perspectives allow. She served in the Auxiliary Territorial Service during World War II. Two years after the war ended, she married Prince Philip Mountbatten. 
hope I pronounced that right, Duke of Edinburgh. Their marriage would last just four more years of her total reign as queen, which is a quite remarkable 73 years. Prince Philip would die in April of 2021. Elizabeth and Philip would issue four children of their own. The newly crowned King Charles III, who, side note, was the longest serving heir apparent to the British crown in its damn near ancient history, donning the cool hat at 73 years of age. Princess Anne, the embattled and humiliated Princess Andrew, Duke of York, and Prince, excuse me, Prince Edward, Earl of Wessex. Elizabeth is also survived by eight grandchildren, and at last count, I believe it's 12 great-grandchildren. See, Elizabeth II is an interesting figure for me personally. As an American, my first instinct, with absolutely no ill will toward my UK cousins, really, my first instinct, again, is to just shrug my shoulders and say something snarky and unrefined as, you know, I mean, so what? I am no one's subject, not least of all Elizabeth's. But with a figure like Queen Elizabeth II, a passing like hers, again, simply cannot be ignored. To be quite blunt, Queen Elizabeth II was a wholly remarkable human being. She was a lady of such solid elegance and silent strength that anyone with half a brain cell could see that she was a special leader, if only a cultural and societal one. As prime ministers, and U.S. presidents for that matter, came and went, as certain sides of the political divide took power and lost power, as cultural shifts ranging from legal reforms to music and entertainment swung the pendulum of the 20th century back and forth, as British colonialism continued its collapse across the globe in the shadows of such things like the Cold War, the spread of socialism and communism, the Falklands War between the UK and Argentina, the first Gulf War in Kuwait and Iraq, the relinquishing of Hong Kong to China, the War on Terror, the Second Gulf War, the war in Afghanistan. Queen Elizabeth II was watching it all as the beating heart of the British organism. It wasn't all doom and gloom throughout her life, though. She also reigned during times that saw the first women ordained as priests within the Church of England, which was in 1994. That same year, the Chunnel, linking England to France by way of motor vehicles, was opened. Speaking of women's advancement in societal roles, we can hardly forget about the formidable figure of Margaret Thatcher taking the mantle of Prime Minister on May 3, 1979, becoming Britain's first female Prime Minister. Elizabeth witnessed the, con uh, excuse me, Elizabeth witnessed the conversion of a decimalized currency in 1971, replacing the centuries-old ancient pounds, shillings, and pence system. She watched Americans Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin make humankind's first footprints on the surface of the moon. She welcomed the first former colony in Africa, Ghana, to the neighborhood of nations in 1957. Just one year into her reign, the structure of DNA was published, which would revolutionize medicine in the ensuing decades. She saw the inception of both the BBC and Channel 4. Sir Lawrence Olivier, Sir Elton John, the Beatles. All right, I'm a huge fan of the Beatles, to be honest. 
the Teddy Boys of the 1950s, the rise of soccer, uh, sorry, football, right? Hooliganism, peaking in the 1980s, smearing the beautiful game with blood each Saturday. Hillsborough. The 1976 British heat wave, the worst in two and a half centuries, followed by another one in 95, the worst since 1659, and in 2019, which recorded the hottest temperature on record in the Isles, 38.7 degrees Celsius, or for all of us here in America, 101 degrees Fahrenheit. The North Sea began to be harvested by oil platforms and wind farms during her reign, and she weathered the storm following the Windscale Fire, the worst nuclear disaster in UK history, back in 1959. She saw the mighty Thames freeze solid in her 10th year as queen. The Moorgate tube disaster back in 1975 saw the death of 43 Londoners on their way to work one morning. September 11, 2001. It didn't just affect the United States, despite what we here in the, across the pond believe. 67 folks from the UK lost their lives on that day. The July 7th suicide bombings in 2005 terrorized London. And 12 years later, residential tower construction and safety protocols were forced to update and improve across the kingdom after North Kensington witnessed the 24-story Grenfell Tower catch fire, killing 72. From Doctor Who to Monty Python's Flying Circus, driver Dan Weldon to David Beckham, Graham Greene to J.K. Rowling, 007 to Arthur Dent. I mean, what has this woman not seen, honestly? So, once again, the American in me wants to turn off the nightly news and go on with my life, but some people simply cannot be ignored. The people she's met, the world-changing things she'd seen, and helped her queendom navigate through. It's impressive. We can't forget that she's also the only head of state to oversee two Olympic Games. She opened the Montreal Games in 1976 and, of course, the London Olympics. The awesome London Olympics, I should say. I remember it very vividly. The opening night was incredible. Uh, The London Olympics and, of course, 2012. But the kicker here might be she's not only the longest-serving monarch in English history, coming in at an astounding 70 years and 214 days, beating out Victoria by seven years minus two days. But she's also the longest-serving female head of state in world history. Okay, okay. You're probably wondering why I went into this little quasi-obituary for Queen Elizabeth II, and that's a fair wondering. I've said it before, and it bears repeating. I think it's crucial when studying history to try to link the president as much as possible to the past. That practice may result in pain, may result in disappointment, but it can also sharpen the focus of the lens that we're using to gauge how far we've come as a people, as a species even. Queen Elizabeth II, she first donned the crown when the United Kingdom presided over 35 sovereign states, and by the time of her death, there were but 15. As a proud citizen of a nation once called British America, I can't help but think the peaceful, of course, relatively speaking, of course, relinquishing of these colonies around the world spells nothing but progress. 
Does this pattern spell a weakening of the British influence around the world? Well, I mean, feeble-minded folks would probably dismiss it as a certainty, but you and I, we're not feeble-minded folks. To me, Britain is only empowered in the trend that Elizabeth II was such an integral part of. This is why I can say proudly that I've become a, just a bit of an Anglophile myself over the years, because, I mean, atrocities and all, in my opinion, there's simply no other country in history to have had such a larger, who have had a larger impact on the world than England and its united kingdoms of Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and the Isle of Man. So what again does this have to do with the year 1069 and the fizzling out of the House of Godwin? Well, it's simple. Say what you want about how 1066 went down. Say what you want about how Duke William of Normandy handled his new kingdom in the years post-1066. At the end of the day, the bloodline of both men leading their countrymen and mercenaries at Sinlac Hill near Hastings there by that old apple tree in 1066, one may have died on that battlefield, and one may have gone on to conquer the kingdom of England, but both share their proud fractions of the blood that coursed through the veins during Queen Elizabeth II's last breath. Now, obviously, the DNA itself has been diluted through the centuries, but theoretically, you know, it's still there. Much in the same way my own haplogroup has been determined to have originated somewhere in the Turkish highlands we now call Anatolia, and most likely followed the proto-Celtic people westward across Europe, and finally resting predominantly in the north of Ireland and the area connecting Manchester to Liverpool. Yeah, that's me. So much the same way I can draw back to the, what, the highlands of Anatolia through my haplogroup, sure, the blood itself isn't exactly there, but there are signs. That's what I'm getting at. Now, if we follow Elizabeth II's lineage, we find some incredible connections. I mean, it's just, again, those of you across the pond are probably thinking, wow, these Americans know nothing, but why would we know it? So I'm just sharing what I've learned. So Elizabeth's father was, of course, King George VI, as we've said, but her tree extends incredibly far back. Some notables that it passes through are Queen Victoria, A woman so incomparable that she quite literally defined an age by lending her name to it. Well, she is Elizabeth's second great-grandmother. King George III is her third great-grandfather, but eh, that's all he's worth to us here in the States. We can move on from him. King James I of the Bible's King James Version that's still used universally, it seems, today He's her ninth great-grandfather. King Henry VIII, haha, is her twelfth great-granduncle. King John, who's famous as the sniveling, weak, and cruel lion, whose crown can't seem to fit quite right in the Disney classic Robin Hood. Yeah, he's her eighteenth great-grandfather. The indomitable brother to John, King Richard I, or as he's known more, Richard the Lionheart, who made waves during the Crusades, the Lionheart is also Elizabeth's 18th great-granduncle, as Richard and John again were brothers. King Henry II, and thus by extension, his also indomitable wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, 
Well, Henry II was her 19th great-grandfather. And after all these unbelievably memorable historical figures, including King Stephen and King Henry I, we ultimately find our way to the conqueror himself, Duke William of Normandy, or, of course, King William I of England. Simply unbelievable that we still, today, have a winding yet still quite direct line straight back to the tyrant who is our main protagonist. Or is he the antagonist? Anyway, of our season on the podcast. But that's just William's line. And I promised you Harold Godwinson's bloodline, didn't I? Now, we are at the point in our podcast that the Godwinsons are left to the mercy of fate, essentially. They made a less-than-mediocre attempt at, the, at, at William's crown of England, and at this point have survived the incredibly dangerous through-crossing of the Channel, the very waters that are guarded and patrolled by their arch-nemesis on both sides. They've ended up in Denmark at the court of King Swain II Estherson, a kinsman and longtime ally of the House of Godwin. Surely he would offer some support for their reclamation of their lands and crown and influence, but, well, we'll soon find out what happens there, don't worry. Now, from Denmark, however, Harold Godwinson had sons and daughters of meritable age, and it was, well, it was high time they rebuild what they could after 1066. And there's one person they could count on more than anyone else, Harold's young daughter, Githa, named after her still-living grandmother, the current matriarch of the once-mighty House of Godwin. She would need to rise to the occasion if their bloodline was to continue, and it turns out, she did splendidly. See, King Swain Estherson negotiated a marriage between Githa and Vladimir II Monomach, the soon-to-be Grand Prince of Kiev. Though it wasn't some foregone conclusion quite yet. It was a gamble. And seeing how far the Godwinsons have fallen, it was, well, it was what they were offered, to be blunt about it. This marriage gave birth to Mzistislav I of Kiev, whose progeny eventually married into the royal court of Hungary. From King Andrew II of Hungary through his daughter, Violant of Hungary, the Godwinson bloodline married into the court of Aragon, way out west, then north to Capetian kings in France, and finally, at long last, back to England through the veins of the she-wolf herself, Queen Isabella, wife of King Edward II. Now, their son, Edward III, would be where William and Harold would ultimately make their centuries-long reconciliation. Interestingly, England and Europe were undergoing some massive upheavals, upheavals during this time. I hope you don't mind the spoilers here. We won't get to it for quite a while on the podcast, but the irony is so strong here you just can't ignore it. Now, not only was Edward III's birth on the heels of the tumult caused by, you know, Queen Isabella and her lover, the scoundrel Roger Mortimer, but... It would be Edward III who would kick off the Hundred Years' War. And he would do it as the progenitor of the House of Windsor to boot. And what's more, along with the devastating, you know, medieval version of a world war that was the Hundred Years' War, 
Europe was also entering into arguably its most devastating series of events in its truly ancient history. A bubonic plague so horrific that it would kill between 75 and 200 million people across Europe, Northern Africa, and the Middle East and Asian steppes. It would one day be called the Black Death. So, my point? Just as violently as Harold Godwinson and his illustrious house was torn away from the throne of England, it seems that it had no choice but to one-up the tearing away in order to rejoin. So in short, Elizabeth II, through Edward III, is also linked to the other side of the Battle of Hastings. Truly a remarkable turn of events. Elizabeth, that, that sweet old lady, at least that's how I've come to know her over my 41 years on this earth, had some serious muscle and finesse and cunning coursing through her tiny little veins. And now King Charles, King Charles III of the United Kingdom and its 14 other commonwealths is at the helm of this truly, truly ancient kingdom. And his son, Prince William, will most likely become its next monarch after the death of his father. He could always choose a different name when he's crowned, one of, one of his four middle names. Personally, I'm, I'm pulling for Arthur. But he will most likely choose the one that wraps a nice pretty bow on this episode, Prince William will most likely be coronated King William V. But before we go, let me indulge you in just one more thread here. Do you remember in our story uh, Edward, who Edward the Exile was? That, that he was, well, you know, exiled to Hungary and then invited back to England to be Edward's successor to the throne. You remember that? He steps, what, two steps into England, right? And he sneezes once and it seems like he keeled over dead. His daughter went on, spoiler alert, to marry the King of Scotland. And through her, uh, Edward the Exile's line merges with William's line in King Henry II just one century later. But go the other way with it. Edward the Exile's father was none other than, of course, Edmund Ironsides, whose father was Ethelred II, or as we know him, Ethelred the Unready, whose father was Edgar whose father was Edmund I, whose father was Edward the Elder, and finally back to G.D. King Alfred the Great himself. Yes, maybe not directly, but Queen Elizabeth II is also, if you squint just so, related to both the Alfred of history and the Alfred of legend. But this thread doesn't stop there. Check this out. Between Alfred the Great and Henry II, this bloodline weaves in and out of England itself. Like, like, it weaves heavily through the county of Flanders. And for those playing along at home, don't spoil it for the others. Alfred's daughter, Elfthrith, married into the county of Flanders by marrying Count Baldwin II. From this marriage, Alfred's blood passes from generation to generation to a man we've met on the podcast already. Several times, actually. Count Baldwin IV of Flanders. From him, his son, Count Baldwin V of Flanders, had a beautiful little firework of a daughter who didn't take crap from anybody, it seems, least of all, some upstart Norman who allegedly threw her off her horse and into some mud face first after she refused his marriage proposal. 
She'd spend the rest of her life keeping that man in check while also keeping that man absolutely enamored with her. Yes, we're talking about the subject of our next episode on the podcast. None other than William the Conqueror's wife, Matilda of Flanders. Man, I can't wait to tell you about her. Whew. Until next time. <laughs>